Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. As you and I carry the message, the hope of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, we get to share with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers about the only thing that can set us free from sin and give us the purpose in life that we've been striving after. So each one of us is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a place to bring joy to it through word and deed. The the next person we're kind of introduced with on this scene and whose kind of ministry focus we're, we're really looking at this morning is a guy named Philip. And Philip, we believe, is Philip the deacon. Again, we don't believe he's the apostle because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so we see from a few chapters before that this Philip was one of the deacons that was selected there. And this section shares with us that Philip's ministry was one of word and deed. It says in the text, verse 6, that they heard him and they saw the signs he did. Verse 7 tells us that they saw the lame were healed and demons were cast out. And while there is a miraculous nature in the account here, take note of the needs that Philip is focused on. There's spiritual deliverance and physical needs that are being met. There are needs both spiritually and physically. And a true witness always involves both. We are to share the word. The gospel literally means an announcement to proclaim. And we've probably all heard the famous saying of Francis Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And implicit in this saying is the understanding that often the most powerful sermons are unspoken. And while there is truth somewhat to that statement, this is far from what Jesus instructs his followers to do. It is not what you see the ordinary people of the early church doing. They are people who boldly proclaimed the gospel out loud with words. However, their lives also reflected the life-changing reality of the gospel. The words of the believer, the words that we share, must match the life of the believer. The truth that we proclaim to live our lives by and we hold one another accountable to, are we living it out? So there's words that need to be proclaimed. The gospel needs to be proclaimed out loud. 
But there's also deeds. They saw. There was interaction. In verse 6, it calls his deeds, Philip's deeds, signs. And a sign points to something. These early miracles pointed to the gospel. They they gave a tangible expression of Jesus' physical kingdom. His kingdom is, is one of healing, not magic tricks or an opportunity for personal gain or want. And so in the Bible, miracles were not to show that Jesus just had some raw power over the elements of this world. No, it had a much larger message than that. It pointed to his heavenly purpose of gathering a people that though they may suffer many things on this earth, there is a kingdom that one day will consume the earth once Christ comes for his bride, the church. So the words of the believer must match the life of the believer as we interact in tangible ways. Peter even speaks of this in 1 Peter. He calls believers to adorn the gospel. Live it out. Care well. Wherever God has placed you, care well for those around you. That we would interact in tangible ways and caring well for the needs of others while pointing them to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What we need to reflect on, though, as well, is what's the response of Samaria? It says in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. This impact of Philip's work in proclaiming the word of God and tangibly living out the gospel among these people was that there was much joy in this city. You know, it is our desire and prayer specifically here at Hope, that we would be a place that loves the Lord greatly, but also invests well in the communities that we represent. There's a variety of ways in which we attempt to do this. By opening up our building for community events, such as town meetings that have been held here before, blood drives and special interest groups. Hosting community events that each of us can invite our neighbors to, like the Christmas services and Christmas play that we just had, or trunk or treat, and other events that open up, are open to the community to be involved with, to show that we're here to invest in the place that God has placed us in. And we want you to benefit from that. We've served as a place for those in the community to mourn the loss of a loved one by hosting their funeral services here when they had nowhere else to go. We've been able to provide a beautiful place called Threads to serve people in a community with great quality clothing and a great volunteer staff that cares well for those people. We have small groups who serve one another and serve their neighbors. We have helped when tragedy has struck those in our community. I don't list those things to boast about here's what we've done. By the grace of God, why do we do these things? The first reason is because we should be compelled by the gospel to live like Christ in the places that God has put us in. But also, just as it was here in Samaria, it's so that we would bring joy 
to our community by being part of it. That we would not be a burden to our community. Whether our community at large agrees or disagrees with everything that we share about the word of God and what the Lord calls us to in our lives, what a wonderful testimony it is for community members to say, we don't necessarily agree with everything they preach about, but we are so glad to have them as a part of our community. There is much joy in that city because of the ministry of Philip. And we should bring joy to our community by living out the gospel every single day. One last issue before we leave this portion, before talking briefly about Simon the Magician. In the next several chapters here in Acts, we'll be looking at the gospel spreading out beyond Jerusalem. This is just a start. And it's spreading out to those who many would have considered to be absolute outcasts. Samaria, we're going to get to the eunuch from Ethiopia, we're going to get to Saul, we're going to get to Cornelius and his household. Philip brings the gospel to the people of Samaria. Jesus had already shared that this was what was going to happen in Acts chapter 1. But Samaria was separated socially, geographically, and even religiously from the Jewish people. There's quite a history to understand what that separation looked like, how we got to this separation. Samaritans were a mixed race that Jews would not accept. There was this animosity between the two people groups with many stories recorded of how they attacked one another. It was because of this dislike they had for one another. But what do we see happen? The gospel was doing something radical. The Samaritans received the gospel with joy. And Philip's ministry overcomes the nationalistic borders and ethnic prejudices, fulfilling the prophecy that we actually see in Ezekiel 37 of joining them back together as as God's people. This welcoming of the Samaritans, though, into the new community is confirmed by this strange account of the delayed reception of the Holy Spirit. Verses 14 and 17, right? We have this call to Peter and John, the apostles, to leave Jerusalem and come witness what is happening here. These people have put their faith in Christ. They've been baptized. And so the apostles, Peter and John, are are sent to come pray and lay hands on them before they receive the Spirit. And this delay here is the only time after Pentecost where the initial indwelling of the Spirit occurs. It doesn't occur. So Luke seems to be emphasizing this for his readers because of the rift between Jerusalem and the Samaritans. Samaria must wait for the Spirit and Jerusalem must witness it. And the outcome is twofold affecting both the Samaritans and the apostles moving forward. The apostles come, right? Peter and John come. They're convinced of God's love for the Samaritans as they witness the pouring out of the Spirit, which we see even uh, uh, more emphasized as you get to the end of the portion we read in verse 25. What do the apostles do as they're heading back to Jerusalem? 
They're stopping at all these villages of Samaritans, what? Preaching the gospel. The apostles are convinced that yes, they are turning to Christ and the gospel has come to Samaria. But the Samaritans needed to see that they were connected. They were no longer the outsiders, but that they were connected and not separate from the Jerusalem church. See, God's people his, and his apostles needed to see that, yes, the gospel was, in fact, going outside the normal lines that had been drawn. And it was, in fact, authentic. So God delays his giving of the Spirit so that the apostles could witness that and be a testimony to how the gospel was going to continue to spread. And the Samaritans needed to see that they were part of God's family no longer rejected, no longer isolated. And it's the gospel that creates unity that can overcome any obstacle. The unity we so desire, it's not found in our politics, our national traditions, or even by just letting everyone live how they see fit in their own lives. It comes through the gospel. The gospel that calls each of us to lay ourselves down for the interest of God as the Lord of our lives. And then we get this fun account of Simon the magician. First of all, what kind of magician are we talking about here, right? Like, my mind goes all kinds of weird places, right? I'm just thinking that he's on the street corner, like, what was so interesting that we, Luke had to pull out and there was this magician? During ancient times, the, the magic that would have been exercised was a mixture of this genuine, uh, maybe genuine scientific knowledge, right? Think, true things about medicine and astronomy and math, things that they understood and knew of that time period, mixed in with a little bit of superstition, the use of amulets and charms, interpreting dreams and horoscopes, and even sleight of hand, all right? What we would may, maybe more traditionally think. In our modern era, that would be the equivalent of people who, you know, who read horoscopes. It's that person who's reading the tarot cards or uses crystals or sells potato chips with the face of Jesus on it for $10,000 on eBay, okay? This is the line what we're thinking here, right? Simon seems, though, he is unique in that there's another magician who shows up later on in Acts chapter 13 who seems to be more demonically influenced through occultish acts. We don't see that here with Philip. He's just your kind of common, modern-day street magician. Simon initially believes, in fact, that he's baptized and even follows Philip around. We see that in verse 13. But he seems to be more focused on the signs and great miracles performed by Philip. So once the apostles lay hands on the people to receive the Spirit, Simon does what would have been actually a very normal thing for other magicians to do, which is to sell their secrets. And this is what he asks of the apostles. Hey, that cool trick you did, can you sell me that trick? Again, I, I, it's not clear in the text if Simon was truly converted or not. We see him go through these things where he, it says he believed and baptized, but the response of the apostles may help, make us consider otherwise. It does indicate that he may not have truly been converted. But the focus that Luke puts on this situation is that Simon was struggling with his own interest 
and his love for power that would elevate his status as a magician rather than submitting to the Lord and seeing the gospel as a gift from God. The true gospel teaches, as we see highlighted in Paul's letter to Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace are you saved, not of yourselves. Why? Because it's a gift of God that no man can boast. Ultimately, Simon is basically asked to back off. Peter rebukes him, saying, you're not asking for the right reasons. You're asking because you just want to elevate your popularity, your position. The gospel cannot be purchased. If it's a gift of grace from God, then that means none of us can boast. I have nothing to boast about because my entire standing before God is a gift of grace. And any ability that I have is a gift of the Holy Spirit. A life lived for the gospel says that I really don't want the attention to be on me because there's nothing in me that could help you. I would want you to see Jesus that I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And then finally, as we draw this to a conclusion, I want conclusion, I want us to see just overall the, the arches that we're, I think we need to take away from here. As we see Philip's ministry, the impact that's having this unification that is taking place, the gospel is spreading. <coughs> but there's a couple of key takeaways that I want us to leave here with. How do we take what the early church was going through and reflect on it in such a way that it helps us know how to move forward as a church? Listen, our, our model, quite frankly, is not, hey, what did the early church do? Let's model every little thing that they did. Our ultimate goal is to do exactly what the early church did in modeling Jesus Christ. That's our ultimate goal. What we learn from the example of the early church, I think is there's two major things from this text. First one is the world may look chaotic and out of control, but it is not out of God's hand. This is a helpful reminder because we are so easily distracted away from this reality, this truth. The great spread of the gospel began as a result of intense persecution. In fact, we're going to see as the gospel spreads, persecution only became more intense. We need to remember that then, just as it is now, there is no golden age that we should ultimately ultimately be striving for as the answer to the cultural problems we see as a society. We're people who have a sin problem. There is no golden age. Every age, we've twisted and manipulated, desiring our own way, trying and attempting to be our own gods in society. Our joy it should be, as Christians, God's sovereignty and believing that his governance is good. And yes, that means even in unsettling times and times of dark persecution, 
to believe that about our God, it takes humility. It means we don't have all the answers to why certain things happen. It does mean that we humbly trust that God understands more than we can even comprehend in the moment how all of this works out for good and gives him the most amount of glory. But the problem most of us have, I'm speaking of myself in this, is that cultural drift, any changes in tradition, and the pain caused by living differently than the culture leads us to quickly turn to fear, which mixed with our desire for immediate change disturbs our comfort. We just want to be comfortable. So we get angry and upset and look around at all the things that are going wrong and say, oh, if people would only change, yes, but be reminded that Jesus promised his followers that there would be tough days ahead. Jesus reminded his followers, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. But don't leave it right there. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So we run to Jesus. We run to his promises. Remind ourselves of these truths. Why? Because we need it. Because we too easily run away and cower and hide. 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. What is this saying? It's saying, now those of you who really like tent camping, I love tent camping. I mean, it's wonderful. Some of you go, absolutely not. My wife looks at me and goes, unless it involves like, you know, Hilton Hotel in any way, she's not going camping with me, okay? Now, some of you may have been blessed with, you know, a wife who, you know, chews and shoots guns and knows what a 30 odd six is. Awesome, okay? And she's enjoying it with you. Not mine. But here's what it's saying. It's painful right now. It hurts right now. But there is a better day coming and it's already ready for you. We live now preparing for eternity by trusting God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, by living a spirit-empowered changed life that draws others to the gospel and looking forward to when he comes again to complete the work he initiated at the cross. Last thing. Lastly, the mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped regardless of the foe. Look at the early church. Little uh, community called Rome. See that tongue-in-cheek? They rolled from India to England. Right? And, and, and feeling threatened, 
They're that big. And they begin to feel threatened by Christianity. What do they do? They persecute Christians. Ripping them out of their homes. Lining streets with crosses to crucify them on. Dipping them in oil and lighting their gardens with Christians. But historians say even through the persecution and its intensity, Christianity grew to more than an estimated 350 million people. I don't have time to look at every moment in history, but just to highlight a few, communism in Russia and the Third Reich tried to manipulate using Christianity or reject it entirely. The Middle East have and continue to kill and remove Christians. Asia has and continues to kill and remove Christians. The United States of America has enjoyed a comfortable environment that has led to too many treating Christianity like an add-on to the regular pursuit of the American dream. The point is, whether through persecution or freedom, Christianity can come under attack. Whether Christianity is illegal or the nation is built upon it, God's mission and his people will not be stopped. Job speaking to God who went through all kinds of terrible things, losing his family and all his wealth and his position. He says, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Habakkuk 2.14 states that for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Allow me to finish with this. As I went through this, the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe some of you are familiar with it, kept coming to mind. And just question one kept burning in the back of my mind. And so I want to share it with you. But with all that we see in the, the response of the church amongst, in the midst of persecution, Philip's ministry and in preaching the gospel boldly, but also caring well in a tangible way for those in that community so that they could respond with joy. With all of that in mind, I bring us to this question, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So no matter what we may be facing, no matter what we may face in the days ahead, May we be a people who, like the ordinary Christians in Jerusalem, even if we are scattered, would we share the gospel in both word and deed. This is the method Jesus has called his church to. And it may be ancient, but it is absolutely for the modern church. 
So what are we waiting for? Let's quit watching and let's join in on God's work now. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for Jesus and the hope that we have. Thank you for the work of your spirit to shape and mold us to be more like your son Jesus. Embolden us with the message of the gospel in whatever place that you have put us, that we would be all about you and your glory. Lord, we, we desperately need your help. We desperately need the spirit to lead and guide us in each and every step of the way. So Lord, help us to see this great example of the early church and their desire to speak the gospel boldly, to care well, to be, to be impacted by your word in such a way that people are reached through your church. Lord, we love you. We commit your word to our lives. Help us to flesh it out. It's in Christ's name we pray.